everyone. This is Erin Halliard, the Artistic Director of Pinchgut Opera. Welcome to another episode of Baroque Banter. And this morning, I am absolutely thrilled to be talking with my very dear friend and longtime collaborator, Chaz Radashiba. Chaz, welcome. Hi, Erin. How are you doing over there? <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're, we're hanging in over here. Man, crazy times. Um, now, Chaz and I go back, go back way, way back. And in fact, Chaz, you've sort of mirrored my career in opera, but you didn't know it at the beginning. And I wanted to take oh. our audience through <laughs> our wonderful, the Chaz Aaron relationship. So we, we first met in the 2001 Sydney Festival when I was assistant uh, artistic director for Mitridate. The great Leo Schofield was running the Sydney Festival that time. And I remember meeting you as I was about 22. And that was the first time we met. That's right. And then five years later, we did our first show together. But I wasn't artistic director. I was in the pit. And that was in Montreal when you directed a beautiful production of Clemenza di Tito. Oh, I love that. Yes. Oh, my gosh. The last scene that you directed was just magic. And um, that was with Bernard Labadie. Right. And then since that time, we started <laughs> collaborating together and we've done six shows. Can you believe that together? Time flies. <laughs> and the first one was uh, Davina Jonatas, uh, right. Charpentier with Pinchgut Opera in Sydney in 2008. And in that, that show, I was assistant um, conductor to Anthony Walker. And then since then, we've actually been collaborators as stage director and conductor. And the first show we did together was Jazone in 2013, and then La Mont Jaloux in 2015, and then the award-winning Artis Essay in 2018. And then uh, last year, we did oh, one of my favourite productions, which was Return of Ulysses. And Ooh. of course, very topically... I just seen you just a couple of months ago because we both did Biazet in Portland for my American debut. And sadly that was canceled due to the COVID-19 health. Sadness, sadness. And so how's work going for you, Chaz? What, what, uh, what's happened for you in the future? You've had quite a few cancellations, haven't you? Lots of them, lots of cancellations, but hope springs eternal. Um, And uh, music now is more important than ever really. So what we're seeing in the face of a lot of cancellations here in the States are uh, uh, a lot of digital content, gala concerts from all over uh, put together via this very method of Zoom um, and people trying to create, to never stop creating. Um, and I think that's gonna get us through for a while. It's gonna be a, it's gonna be a long haul, as they say. But um, there's opera on the other end. Yes, well, <laughs> exactly. Um, and, oh gosh, we've talked so many times over coffee and alcoholic drinks about <laughs> about Baroque opera. But, um, and what I love about collaborating with you, Chaz, is that you do have a very passionate and um, relationship with Baroque opera. And I know it's a hard question to ask, but I'll start with it. What do you love about Baroque opera? That's a, a, it's a great question. It's a hard question. And the, the answer is really long. <laughs> and I don't talk much anyway. But I, I, I would say, I, I think it has to do two main things, I would say maybe, uh, structure, uh, finding beauty and structure, then I would say this balance between, it's, it's an enlightenment idea, the balance between uh, uh, reason and, and emotion. And it's so perfectly depicted in Baroque music. Um, I think it, there, it, people have a sense sometimes that it's, there's a coolness to it, but I find it incredibly passionate music, but passion that has been structured <laughs> and, and controlled in a, in a really beautiful way. And it makes for great storytelling, fantastic storytelling in Baroque music. I can't and agree with you more. I can't agree with you more. I love what you say about the structure. And I think that's what's always appealed to me, that there's this uh, rationalization of, of emotional states, but in such a beautiful, elegant um, and human way. I remember listening to 19th century opera. I mean, did you begin your sort of listening life with the 19th century? Is that how you got into opera or was it actually with Baroque, Baroque music? No, I think it was a sort of a smattering of a lot of different things. And I came to Baroque opera maybe a little bit later, actually. Uh, uh, but but the, it's funny, the, the moment I heard that, I think, I think Alcina, I think was the first Baroque opera I really listen to beginning, middle, and end, and, and really immerse myself in it. It's, it felt to me so, uh, I don't know how to say it another, any other way, 
it felt more real than than the 19th century, 20th century operas to me. It, I it immediately connected with it emotionally and in terms of, of an emotional story. Uh, and I don't know why that happens. I wish I had a good explanation, but it just spoke to me in some way. And I think it has to do with that, that idea of, of structure. It, it feels very comforting to me at the same time as it feels really direct emotionally. You're so astute, Chaz, because that's, that's almost exactly the same response I've had. Because, and I can't also put it in words. I, I also feel that it's more real somehow. Even if 19th century opera sort of mimics, I don't know, I don't want to say cinema, but that more sort of moment to moment dramatization that we're very used to in right. television and cinema, I actually find the earlier music in some respects because of that. Yeah, I like what you say about structure. Because of that structure actually appeals to my emotional states. Uh, I don't know. It, yeah, it's more immediate somehow. And again, I can't quite put it into words. I, then again, I have to say, I, I'm that guy who will go see a play, uh, spoken theater, and I can be entertained by it, but I, I'm always the one fidgeting in my seat thinking, it's just <laughs> real, when, when, why aren't they singing? <laughs> it seems somehow less real to me when people speak. Uh, I, think it's, I think that that emotional immediacy that is, I think, unexpected for audiences that first come to Brogue Opera, they don't. I think there, there, there's a sense that the structure is somehow off-putting, but I find it really has a kind of great emotional immediacy. Now, this is a little bit funny because my listening history is, is quite odd because I, I started, <laughs> I don't really admit this to many people, enjoying musical theatre. You know, I, I mean, it was, I remember listening to Bernstein and Sondheim as oh. a very young teenager. And I found that sort of mix, the, the shift from spoken word to suddenly a sort of musical number, I found that really powerful. There is some parallel in Baroque opera with recitative, which our audience knows is the kind of narrative speech-like element of Baroque music. And then the aria, which is much more structured. It has the orchestral accompaniment. The emotional state is heightened. And anyway, I found that there was a bit of a parallel between um, the way musical theatre was structured and Baroque opera but uh, I don't know if, what your relationship with musical theatre is. <laughs> well, that actually makes sense to me uh, in, in a way. You know, we were always striving to, to figure out, I'm always striving to figure out how do we get from that one element of uh, recitative into the more formal arias and ensembles in, in Baroque opera and, and, and making it sort of feel necessary for people to sing the, the aria itself. And I think that's what happens in music theatre. You, you, you write a scene, a spoken scene, that, that ends in some way where they have no choice but to sing. And that's an incredibly powerful thing. Isn't it? Uh, yeah. When a character can't, I can't just speak it anymore, I, I just have to sing. It's really exciting. Now, as a director, you, um, I mean, you work with 19th century, with 20th century, with 18th, with 17th century opera. <laughs> in fact, you're so versatile. Um, what aspects of Baroque opera do you find challenging and what aspects do you find sort of easy in comparison to those other styles? Ooh, uh, maybe the big challenge really has to do with expectation. And I, I have to say, I preface this, I'm speaking as, a, as an American stage director who mostly directs for American audiences, most of the time. And, and I think our culture is absolutely film and television oriented. And the American theater sense for me, is, all, is plot driven. It's, yes. it's plot, plot, and more plot. And I think that there is this expectation that a plot-centered audience has about what they're going to see in, in a Baroque opera. I can't tell you how many times in the past, oh, I'd say 10 or 15 years, after having done a number of these operas, put them on stage, convincing um, general directors of companies, artistic directors of companies, hey, what do you say we don't put an elaborate synopsis in the program? Because when, when audiences, American audiences read the plot uh, uh, or synopsis of a Baroque opera, their brains explode. All those names and, and odd sort of machinations on paper seem so complicated. And then, you know, when you see it happen in front of you and hear it presented to you, it's so very clear and so emotional and you follow completely, effortlessly. And I think that expectation that it's going to be complicated, but then they're gonna stop all of a sudden and there's gonna be no plot, which 
is another whole story about trying to <laughs> drive the plot even in an aria. Uh, but I think it, it's, it's, this, it's the oddity of, of expectation versus reality that can be very daunting. Yeah, fascinating. It's, um, it's fascinating. Now, thinking about that particular aspect of opera making, our first excerpt is from our first collaboration from Jazzone, oh. all the way back in 2013, so seven years ago. <laughs> but, you know, I've been, uh, I had Celeste on uh, last podcast, Chaz, and we had a oh. wonderful interview just talking about the incantation scene. Ooh, and I, you know, I haven't actually listened to this recording for a long time, and doing these podcasts has been really pleasurable because... It's a beautiful recording, a wonderful cast, and the amount of detail we had, and then just looking over the reviews of your production, which was just so whimsical and perfect, and I think we, had, we created a really extraordinary piece in this, in this show. And the excerpt that we're going to listen to now is the love duet between um, Alinda and Ercoli, and of course we had a very young uh, Alex Omens, who's now just about to um, cusp her career, as it were, and the fabulous Nick Dinopoulos, um as Ercoli. And this is a wonderful little scene. It's, it's actually two 17th century conventions put to one. So it's Ooh. the love duet, um, which is typified by this wonderful duet at the end, but it also incorporates a trumpet aria. Um, so at the end, there's this sort of flirtatious scene between Alinda and um, Ercoli. And then at the end, you know, they say, no more trumpets, no more drums, no more <laughs> battles, no more fighting. Let's just let two hearts in love pass the time in pleasure and singing. Cavalli <laughs> uses the trumpets and drums sort of motif to animate the duet. It's delightful. <laughs>
heard the love duet from Jazone with Alex Omens in the role of Alinda and Nicholas Dinopoulos in the role of Ercoli with the Orchestra of the Antipodes, conducted by me. And the stage director for that production from Pinchgut in 2013 is Chaz Radashiba, who I'm speaking with now. Now, Chaz, a lot of people I talk to um, often want hints or tips on how they might appreciate Baroque opera more. And I was wondering if you had any tips or techniques you might give someone who's a little afraid of Baroque music or maybe hasn't tried it and would like to get into it. One thing I would say to anybody who is, wants to try something uh, new is you, you just have to jump in with both feet. And in, in that sense, you, you have to see it. It can't just be a, a hear it event. As much as I believe that it's music driven, um, at some point opera does, there's a sharing that goes on. And, and so I would say the best, tip I can give you is see a new production. See a, a production that isn't what we call a museum production. They're very beautiful. Idea that people have presented Baroque operas are ah, the way they might have been originally staged. It's very pretty, but it, I, I think that to really enjoy a Baroque opera is to enjoy a, a production that's made for a, 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 an audience that's very much alive. Uh, it has youth and it has excitement and it, characters are, are in general quite young. And, and the singers that we have in this, in the Baroque opera world today are phenomenal and youthful and they're great on stage and the productions you can find now are, are really, uh, they're kind of thrilling in their modernity in a way. And I think it's a, it's a nice way to get into it is to see something that isn't, doesn't feel like a museum, that feels somehow fresh. Um, in the, it's much easier to see those productions now than, than it once was. Go, attend. Spend that, uh, spend that movie and TV money on a ticket to the live opera. Yes, and I can't wait to get back to live performance. <laughs> it's funny. I don't know if you've been feeling this, but I've just talked to a lot of colleagues. I mean, I've been listening to live music a lot in lockdown, and I have this heightened emotional response to it. Like um, I was listening to a chorus the other day and just sort of almost burst into tears because just the idea of having 80 people, you know, singing as a community uh, seemed so overwhelmingly touching to me. I'm not sure if you're having that same experience at the moment. I, I am indeed. Um, I, I'm also having that experience while watching certain television commercials. Things are <laughs> we're all on the edge a little bit. Uh, it's, easy to, it's easy to tear up. Uh, they had a, um, the gala from the Metropolitan Opera yes. uh, was broadcast. And to see in this Zoom world, these tiny little images, uh, the orchestra and the chorus of the Metropolitan Opera from all of their bedrooms and living rooms and bathrooms come together to sing uh, Va Pensiero from uh, of Verdi's yes. Nabucco all together, which is wonderful. I don't think it has ever made me cry before, but uh, it yeah. was really incredibly moving. Yes, I find that once we get back to live performance, the expectations of the audience, but also the artists involved, I think things will have changed in, in quite extraordinary ways. I'm, I'm intrigued to see what it will be like means a lot um, more to us than we ever thought. Just moving backwards, Chaz, to something yeah. you just talked about in terms of modernity. Um, and you and I have always talked about this and been on the, on the right page. And I think our audience would be very interested to hear our views about historical gesture, period gesture and period costumes and so forth. Because, of course, we use period instruments and the singers, as much as possible, sing in a way that resembles what we know about period singing. But yet both you and I prefer a production uh, that, that looks uh, and, and partakes in modernity. And you've often spoken about that quite compellingly by referencing that we don't, we don't have a period audience. And of course, this is, the, this is the elephant in the room with all opera. All the excerpts that we're listening to today, when they were originally done in the 17th and 18th century, had a very noisy, inattentive audience Right. And composers and singers on stage, their job was often to subdue a noisy, noisy audience and grab them by the throat and say, listen to me. And, um, and of course, nowadays we sit there in a very reverent silence. And so I think that's what's animated, uh, at least for me, um, my, my preference for a modern production. I have done period gesture and period costumes before, particularly in Montreal, and I found it very interesting. But yeah, when I want to put on a show... Um, for a modern audience, it's it's that the fact that we don't have a period audience that that right. is most important to me, and and really that's at some point um, it, it's for the audience. Without the audience, it's a very expensive rehearsal. 
And, and so at some point, you, you have to acknowledge that those people are living and breathing right now. They've come from, from today's news and they, all of those things are somehow, they, they bring them with them to the theater. So if we can't find a way for these pieces to speak to a modern audience, for, uh, for that audience in a way to be reflected um, in, in what's on stage, then I think we're, we're not giving it our all. And not, we're, I don't think we're even respecting the piece fully by not finding how it works for a contemporary audience. And I'm guessing there are some operas out there that really don't speak to us now that maybe we have to leave them alone a little bit until they, they have something to say again. Um, but what's amazing about all this Baroque rap is that the stories uh, and, and the emotional stories more than anything else uh, are so uh, completely contemporary. They're raw emotionally and they speak to us so uh, with such immediacy. Um, I think they're the perfect operas in a way for young contemporary people to go to the theater and, and witness. Well, that, that's so interesting you say that because the, uh, the opera that we're just talking about now, um, we've just heard an excerpt from Giazzone. Um, now this was your, was this your second Cavalli opera? I think you did Lomindo once I in did. the States, didn't I you? I did Lomindo, that's right. And um, I find, I mean, this particular, as you know, this opera um, is very rare in that it found independent existence as a play because it was so popular. And I remember um, at the time I'd just broken up with my boyfriend at the time. And um, so I identified <laughs> with the character of Izifile, who was the betrayed princess. Um, there's two extraordinary female characters in this opera, and that's Medea, who's in love with Jason. She drives the action. She's rhetorically strong, very active. And then there's Isifile. It was a slightly more conventional in the 17th century sense in that she was betrayed. She was, she lamented. She was somewhat more passive um, and yet so eloquent in her suffering. Um, so what was your experience of Giazzone? Well, you know, when you're talking about Isifile, there is, there is something passive on first glance, when, and especially when you compare her to a Medea. But uh, really, she has this amazing internal strength, uh, which, which sort of allows the opera to end the way it does without her underneath that lament having fortitude. It would the, the opera just would end a completely different way. I was so reassured as when I, when 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 you all first uh, offered that that show to me, and I was studying and studying and studying it. And, and you, I tried to go through in order, and I finally got to the end, and I, I got to that, that final lament of hers, that final great scene, and, uh, and I thought, oh, yay, I was sort of cheering for her. Even though she's, she feels so defeated, she really lets the people around her have it. Uh, how she expresses herself is so um, is eloquent, but, but, but strong, and... and that internal warrior in her is so um, appealing to me. So even though you just broke up, you should know that life goes on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, certainly what I took from it. And you, look, you're absolutely right. Passive was not the right word because in this scene that we're about to listen to, which is, I think, one of the most extraordinary scenes in all 17th century Italian opera, it's the final scene with Isifile. She's been betrayed by Jason. Um, she's been trying to sort of find him in this crazy, you know, island hopping that is so <laughs> wonderful in this particular opera. Um, and in this final sh scene, it's, uh, she, she just lets Jason have it, you know. Let me die slowly, she says, lento morire, lento morire. And of course, Cavalli sets it with these grinding dissonances. Uh -huh. And Miriam sang it. She just lets loose. We're about to listen to it. It's just extraordinary singing. And, you know, Jason's just getting this, um, this incredible, as you say, um, uh, warrior-like, uh, there's no holds barred, you know. Well, she does it publicly, which is so fantastic. It, exactly, publicly, and she's not the quiet, retiring woman, because, of course, the, the whole opera begins with a lament of hers, right. and then this lament at the end is so different, exactly, very active, and then it, it's followed by the lament proper, which is beautifully accompanied by Cavalli with the strings, so it sort of suggests a giant lirone, which was the stringed instrument that it traditionally accompanied these laments. Anyway, let's have a listen to it now. It's the wonderful, incomparable Miriam Allen as Isifile in the final lament from Giazzone, Infelice Cascolto.
Yeah. 
That was the final thrilling uh, lament of uh, Isifiles from uh, the opera Giazone by Cavalli with Miriam Allen as Isifile, the Orchestra of the Antipodes, conducted by me. And I've got Chaz Radashiba who directed the stage production of Giazone in 2013. Now, our next show, Chaz, was two years after Giazone. And this is, this actually holds a very, very special place in my heart. And this is Le Mont Jaloux by um, the great Belgian composer Gretry. Now, it kind of is the latest opera that we've done in Pinchgut. We then decided to move earlier and specialise in sort of earlier repertoire. But, of course, this is from the early 1770s and it's an opera comique. So it's a selection of ariettes uh, mixed in with dialogue. And this was one of my favourite productions ever. What was the piece like for you? It was a, this, you'd never done Gretry before, yeah? Never, never. And, and I, I had, I had uh, seen some Gretry opera um, but never uh, a staged one, which was a great um, experience and a great challenge, I must say. But we had kind of a dream cast. Yeah, amazing. Who maybe maybe taught me more <laughs> than I could ever teach them. And, and that really smart idea, especially with a comedy, uh, to have the dialogue in English. Uh, really great. We've only done two dialogue operas um, in Pinchgut, uh, a Salieri piece, which we did in English, and, of course, Le Mont Jaloux. It has its own challenges. I think it's, you know, I started the podcast talking about musical theatre, and this is the most direct parallel. You've got a sort of play, spoken word, and then suddenly the orchestra starts and there's this, this song. Um, and obviously, you know, Mozart, when he first heard this kind of structural device, he loved it. You know, he called it, the, at, the, at the time it was called a melodrama. And right. he, started, he started a couple of operas that, that then didn't come to fruition. But, of course, the greatest is The Magic Flute mm-hmm. um, in, this, in, this, in this kind of genre. And that is often done with English dialogue um, yes. and German. Have you directed The Magic Flute, Chaz? I think maybe more than any other. Uh, maybe Giovanni more than any other. But, but flute really? for four or five times, yeah. And, yeah. and what's your relationship? Because I know you do Tito a lot and you have a very special relationship with that piece. I didn't realise mm-hmm. that, that magic, The Magic Flute was one that you did oh. quite a lot. Maybe that old phrase, I'm going to keep doing it until I get it right. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's an incredibly difficult opera. Um, and uh, it presents lots and lots of problems. Mm. But I, I find, I keep coming back to it because I think it's actually, strangely enough, a darker piece than we usually expect. Oh, absolutely. It. I find, um, the, the, you know, those were the two last pieces, Tito and, and Flute. And uh, I find them almost mirror images of, of one another, this father-son relationship that he kept returning to that was so difficult for him, mm. uh, so beautifully played out in those two operas, sort of on op- opposite sides of, of a coin. But I think that as you were talking about music theater, uh, as difficult as it, as it is to not hear every single word uh, set to music, uh, that, that same idea of needing to get to those numbers, um, finding a way to direct dialogue that necessitates singing is sort of part and parcel of making that work. And uh, and because La Montjaloux is clearly a comedy with some really touching and moving moments, but clearly comedy, that's even more important that the audience really f- follows it with a kind of immediacy the dialogue so that they know where we're going and, 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 and why those characters have no choice but to sing out. La Montjaloux... I really felt, I guess it has a favourite, um, I, love, I love this period. The 1770s is, is just an extraordinary time in, in, in Europe historically and I've always been fascinated by that time and um, I found that the orchestration was just so beautiful and I'm a, I'm a Francophile so I love this <laughs> light French comedy and, you know, it, it was a real favourite. Um, it was, became an instant hit and I remember it worked so well in the theatre because it's a perfect length, you know, it was just, it's a little jewel of a piece. It was, um, you know, three acts, but just they go by so fast. And of course we added in some musical numbers, which I thought was really charming and beautiful. Um, and we, and as you said, we had an extraordinary cast. Um, now we're going to listen to two excerpts from La Mangelou. And the first one is kind of the big aria of the piece. The wonderful thing about this aria is, of course, it was put in um, by the, the singer. As an example, Gretry said he was sort of, his hand was forced to, uh, by the character, oh, so Leonore, 
to put this amazing aria in. And she's she's singing it because Don Alonso, she wants to break the chains of love that connect her to uh, La Montjaloux, the title, the, the jealous lover who is Don Alonso. Um, and in this excerpt, we're listening to uh, Celeste Lazarenko in the role of Leonore, Jérôme Le Chêne qui m'engage from the beginning of Act Two of La Montjaloux by Gretry. Yeah. 
That was uh, Celeste Lazarenko singing the aria that opens Act Two of Le Mont Jaloux by Gretry, Jérôme Plechain qui m'engage, um, with the Orchestra of the Antipodes. And that was a Pinch Cut production from 2015. And I'm talking with the stage director of the said of said piece, and that's Chaz Radashiba. Now, Chaz, what's easier to direct for you, comedy or tragedy? Oh, uh, that is a really difficult question. <laughs> it's um, impossible. Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, and it, it, uh, the flip answer is it depends on what side of the bed I wake up on in the morning. Uh, yeah. But they, they both have their challenges and their delights. I, I love directing a comedy, especially when I have the opportunity. And by the opportunity, what I really mean is the collaborators, cast and, and, and conductor and, and designers, to find something a little bittersweet or poignant inside of it. That makes, makes the comedy funnier and it makes the whole experience to me more fulfilling when, when there is a, a little tear underneath or, or, a, or a, a wink or a kind of a sweet understanding underneath the comedy. Then again, in, in directing a, a tragedy, even more so than a drama, that kind of crazy search that I, I go through to try to find moments of lightness, some little yes. glimmer that makes someone smile, that can release a character from their nightmare uh, of an experience. Um, that is also a challenge that I love. Um, I think really, Aaron, when I'm working on a, on, a, on a heavy drama and a hard day of work and rehearsal and go home and think, Oh, I just want to do a comedy now, <laughs> and, and vice, vice versa. You just, uh, but but um, they they have their their both their oddities in both, uh, and I, and I would I would hate to only only be able to do one. I really would. That would be so sad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I, and I love what you say that, but that the elements of both comedy and tragedy and um, in, in each other, and of course, in the 17th century, they were combined in in Baroque wow. opera in the 17th century, and then of course, it's the Arcadians who went. We can't have comedy and tragedy; oh. it's got to be one or the other. And and look, that that was interesting because it created this bifurcation in the in the 18th century. And, and yet, even after that sort of that command of a separation between the two, one still can find that there. And it's not just me; I think it's the, the composers and the librettists. They can't resist those little moments of of one inside of the other because I think it's how they create it, how they create characters who are real. Uh, nobody is, is is all one thing. Exactly. And so I think that that although the attempt is a kind of purity, uh, tragedy or comedy, really the best of them have those little those 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 tragedies have a little wink in them, and those comedies have a, a tear inside, and that's why we love them. I, from the musical perspective, I find comedy, if I had to choose, I find comedy much harder than tragedy from the musical end. Oh, I can imagine. I, I find it's harder because I think it's very easy as a performer to move into caricature. It's easy to sort of overplay comedy sometimes. Whereas I when agree. you overplay tragedy, I don't know, there are different consequences. And it's just finding that very fine line from the musical end. I mean, this is why I love doing comedy with, a st with you, actually, um, <laughs> because I, it, helps, it helps me with the music. I mean, it was the next scene that we're going to look at, actually, is this extraordinary finale of Act Two, which is kind of a comic, well, it, was, it became a theatrical trope. And it's this moment where um, Don Elons, the jealous lover of the title, La Mangelou, meets with Leonore, they have this fight. They right. then make up in this beautiful duet that is just so stunning. And then they, they, you think everything's fine. And then from back of the stage, you hear Florival, who's mistaken Leonora for someone else, start his famous serenade with a mandolin. And do you remember that you did this wonderful, during the serenade um, in our production, you did some wonderful things that made the audience laugh. Do you remember that? <laughs> and then, of course, oh. we were recording, recording this for CD. And I remember we had this long discussion because I actually love having the laughter of the audience <laughs> in the track. But in the end, we did it as a fresh recording, which right. is what we're about to hear without the laughter. But I think our listeners to this podcast should imagine 
just the comic, the wonderful little touches you you put in um, that created such a funny scene. And then, of course, uh, Florival runs off, realises his error, and that previously gorgeous duet is turned on its head by Gretry. It's a wonderful moment of music history and it becomes this spit fest between Don Alonso and Leonor and the act ends with literally a, a door slamming. You know, it's like a, a three-door comedy. But I do remember this. It's an exquisite piece of French theatre um, and you did it so well. Yeah, a wonderful scene. And, in fact, this serenade that we're about to listen to, sung beautifully here by Andrew Goodwin, was very popular in the 19th century and there's many, many arrangements of it and it's such a beautiful tune and it's called Tandis que tu sommeilles from the Act 2 finale of Le Mans Jaloux. That was the very, very famous uh, serenade from La Mont Jaloux by Gretry, uh, sung by Andrew Goodwin in the role of Florival. And the serenade is called Tandis que tu sommeilles. I love that. I listened to the act too. It's amazing. And I remember, <laughs> I just remember Celeste, you know, moving across the stage <laughs> and doing all those fabulous back looks and the audience just loved it. It's so funny. It, it's just, you have Celeste and Ed on that you can't, I mean, it's a win-win. <laughs> oh, they got on so well. It was so great. Now, let's move to a very famous Pinchbutt production, and that was our first award-winning production, and that's Hus's Artazerse, which won Best Rediscovered Opera at the International Opera Awards in 2019. And it was our first collaboration together with uh, Vivica Janot, the great exponent of 18th-century Baroque opera. And that was the first time you'd worked with her, wasn't it, Chaz? Yes, first time. Hopefully Just, not. <laughs> uh, oh, exactly. Hopefully not the last. I have to tell our audience that Vivica is 
one of the most beautiful human beings I've ever had the pleasure of knowing and working. She is agreed, just a utter delight um, and has captured my heart. You know, I just, it was a huge honor. I remember, I have to admit that when she first arrived, I was so nervous <laughs> because I've listened to every single recording she's ever made and followed her career since I've been about, uh, about 20. I mean, how old was she when she, I mean, she was, she was in her, I mean, she started off doing Rossini, didn't she? And then she moved right. into the Brock world exactly. sort of, exactly. uh, you know, only what about 15 years ago, maybe. I think that's about right. I think and that the yeah. recording was the big entry to that. And she doesn't do Rossini so much anymore, does she? Not so much, no. Yeah, but she really created, I mean, it was, it was the Cenerentolas and, oh. I mean, and, and uh, Mezzo and, oh, man, the technique on Vivica. Incredible. Just phenomenal. I remember she, she told me she took a year off sort of productions just to learn how to trill. And I was like, hats off. <laughs> hats off. This woman is a genius and a really extraordinary. And she's, and just what you said earlier about learning so much from people. Okay. I mean, I, I never want to stop learning as a, as a, as a director in inverted commas, you know, and I learned so much from, from Vivica in this production, but also I have to say her Italian colleague, Carlo Vistoli, who um, created the role of Artabano in that production. Carlo, again, just to have that, you know, an Italian, a native Italian singing this role taught me so much about Italian diction. Well, the, the basics of Italian, you know, just from a basic level, Italian diction, but also just more, more that character really emerged from this piece as a very complex character, Artabano. Right. And how did you approach this, this, you know, when we, when we started putting it together? I, uh, I was very strange. I, um, it had never been recorded. I hadn't heard all of the music. By default, in a strange American way, uh, it was a lot, you know, I, I, whenever I, I have a new piece to look at and I, I want to make sure that I translate it all um, very, very carefully. And that was, that was my way into slowly and carefully studying the storytelling side of the piece. Um, and it is a lot of, it's a lot of opera to, uh, to handle. Um, so it came through the story and, and then the music reveals itself uh, slowly but surely as an as a astonishingly accurate uh, way of, of creating character. And I think that when you have a, a cast, that, uh, Vivica, Carlo, these people who respond so, with such incredible emotional immediacy to the music, the story really takes care of itself. Absolutely. It was an astonishing cast. This obsession, I, and, and it was an obsession for me, I'll admit it, to making sure the audience could follow, 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 follow all the, the ins and outs of this relatively complicated plot. It was, it was time that was not maybe well spent uh, for, 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 for me. Uh, it, it, it was so clear in their hands, and by in their hands I mean in their voices, it was so clear the, the, the story that they had to tell. Um, they made my job so much easier through their art artistry. I loved this piece before we started, and then I became obsessed with it while we were working, and, and even afterwards. I, I still feel today it is a piece that is so important to me. Uh, it was a real absolutely fascinating to hear you talk about that. And yes, exactly. Um, for our audience listening, this particular um, opera had never been recorded in this version, and of course I spent months and months making this edition and then you and I spent weeks and weeks trying to cut it down and it was still a very long length and what's interesting about this particular opera it was written for court it was written for a private court performance of course when I say private it was an enormous audience you know the the court at Dresden would have had uh, hundreds of people in this theater but it wasn't a public event it wasn't you couldn't buy a ticket it was a um, sort of by invite only and courtly theatre in the 1740s was long you know they loved a long night in the theatre it was luxurious mm -hmm. it's um you know Hassa really takes his time to um allow a lyricism to flourish and more than any other opera I think Chaz this was the one where I really had to work on ornamentation because of course Hassa's structure which had been in place for four decades was this da capo convention, an ABA format. You have um, the A, the singer sings an A, there's a contrasting B and then the A returns. 
and that was expected to be ornamented by the singer. And at the time, it was ornamented in different ways. And of course, Hasse was writing for his astonishingly good singer wife. <laughs> they were <laughs> they're a composer singer team, and that was Faustina Bordoni. And that was the role that Vivica um, created in our production. And I remember just because they were very long arias, you know, when you listen to um, Vivaldi, for example, from the same time, which is not court opera, it's, it's, it's public opera, much shorter arias, you know, four or five minutes maybe. But you go to court in Dresden and it's suddenly luxuriating in an amazing bath and it's 12 minutes, you know, they were, they were, they were quite long. And in any case, I had a wonderful time ornamenting these arias um, with Vivica. And maybe, what could you could you speak a little bit, Chaz, about the challenges of the de capo format for you as a director? That you do have the repetition of certain words, and yeah, it's heightened musically. But um, yeah, maybe you it, could share with us some of those challenges. It's a challenge I kind of love. I have to yeah. say, of all the different challenges that are specific to opera or even more so specific to Baroque opera, I think this is the one I love the most. And because it it keeps reminding me in a six-hour rehearsal day, many times per day, uh, it, it reminds me of something that I, I really believe in about presenting Baroque opera now. And that is that for me, it becomes a little bit of a trap to say that in the recitative, we tell a story and the plot moves forward and then everything stops and we just wallow in a single yes. <laughs> uh, grand emotional moment, if, whether it's, a, it's five minutes of Vivaldi or 12 minutes of Hassa, it doesn't matter. To me, I love the idea of, of being able to luxuriate um, and to be able to spend time and give, give over to an emotional journey. But <laughs> I really love the challenge of trying to keep the opera moving forward in some way during these arias so that you don't feel as if, well, yes, that character has been sad for 12 minutes, but when you try to start up the opera again, it's a little bit like uh, uh, you know, two steps forward, one step forward, two steps back, that you have to keep restarting that engine. And uh, for me, that the that, that couple form, which, is, which I, I love, it is sort of part, and part of me now. Yes. Um, but it, it, it is a constant reminder, yes, tell the emotional story, but see if we can't make something really move forward during those arias so that when the scene picks up again, you don't lose time, that, that you keep the suspense, for lack of a better term, the excitement, the energy of the opera going uh, and, and trying not to let it drop. And I think that it's dependent... Uh, on, on a lot of elements, um, and not the least of which is the singer and the conductor and the ornaments that they create based on trying to tell some kind of emotional story. And I, I think that this is where the genius of, of someone like Vivica Genot comes to the fore, that you see that as much as she is interested in filling out 12 minutes of, of heartbreak, uh, the first minute and the last minute couldn't be more different. They they she 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 takes you on a incredible journey um, and 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 i love trying to i like trying to match uh, her her expertise in a way uh i i try to rise to her ex her, her her level of excellence oh uh, it was the same for me. absolutely the same for me and um the excerpt that we're going to listen to now is actually the ornamented uh a section of the uh, final aria before our interval in this production, um, which was a stunning aria. Um, Chaz, it's been so wonderful to talk with you um, this morning and thanks for taking time. I know it's the evening for you, but uh, I can't wait to see you again in the flesh very soon. <laughs> Yay. Thank you so much. It's so fun to talk about Baroque opera with you. <laughs> we could have gone on for another, I'm looking at the watch, uh, the clock here going, oh gosh, I barely covered the surface, but actually um, we'll have you back uh, uh, very shortly. And yeah, do stay safe, Chaz. And thank you so much for coming in this morning. Thank you. And now this is uh, Seduna Mor Tirano, uh, Act 2, Scene 6 of Artis Essay with Vivica Genoa as Mandane. Thank <laughs> you. 
was an excerpt from the aria Sedun Amor Tirano from Act 2, Scene 6 of Hasse's Artaserse with Vivica Genol in the role of Mandane. We heard the ornamented A of that aria and the cadenza that Vivica sang uh, incorporates uh, a small cadenza that I discovered of Handel. Uh, I shouldn't say I discovered it, but I brought it to Vivica's attention because she'd never seen it. It's a uh, Extant, there's only a couple of cadenzas that, that are written in Handel's hand. And this one uh, is very beautiful in that it's quite expressive and conforms to some of the uh, edicts about cadenzas from writers such as Hiller, Tozzi and Agricola. And Vivica loved it, uh, so I was really thrilled to bring that to her attention. And you can hear that the audience also loved that aria as well. This has been another episode of Baroque Banter, and this is Erin Heliard signing off. In the meantime, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon.